you add a couple of bro means you get purple instead of blue. When I add a couple of bros, I usually get purple too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Uh, <laughs> Stupid joke. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Apoptosis is going mad, my liver's gonna fail Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails Well say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea I'll be back with time because I'm made of stardust and chemistry A stardust and chemistry then hello and welcome to Cowboy Chemistry, where we talk about the wilder days of chemistry. Uh, my name is Dylan Gardner, uh, my pronouns are they, them, and I am a chemist uh, and a PhD candidate. I'm a chemist and a PhD candidate at Texas Tech. Uh, my guest today is Val Burba, a local comedian and cosmetologist. Yes. I ask all my guests and we start off by me asking you, how much do you know about chemistry? I, I don't think a lot. <laughs> I don't think very much. No, well, I mean, you dye hair, and hair dyeing is chemistry, right? Yes, and I, I don't know, like, how it's made, but I understand mm -hmm. what it's doing to the hair. So I guess, you know, a little. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I count it as chemistry. Okay. I mean, we're we're making an entire podcast episode about it, so. It's chemistry. As long as it has to do with hair dye, you're, you're about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. So... Um, today's episode is about, um, in general, dye um, and how um, dyes were created by, and how dyes were created by the modern chemical company. So, like all modern chemical companies, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of them started off making dyes first. So, like, and then they branched into like pharmaceuticals and all these other things that we think of when we think of a chemical company. Um, it was mostly dyes or petroleum, but mm. we're going to talk about the dye companies. Um, of course, dyeing clothes and hair is an ancient practice. Um, the extractions and preparations of dye was recorded in China as early as 3000 BC. And depending on how you define chemistry, this is one of the first examples of chemistry in the ancient world. Um, most dye came from natural sources such as berries, bark, berries, bark from tree or various leaves and roots. Um, most naturally derived dyes did not stain the clothing well by themselves. So, like, if you dip, just dipped it in berry juice, yeah. you wash it, it's gone, right? right. <laughs> um, and so you need this thing called a mordant to pre-treat the fabric. Uh, mordant is used to set the dyes and um, bind the dyes into the fabric, and they're usually metal. So, like, chromium, aluminum, copper, iron potassium, soda, sodium, tungsten, or tin. Mm. Metal. <laughs> All right. Sounds safe. It is not safe, <laughs> Sounds good. And, of course, like, a lot of these two were in early ancient times were used on hair. <laughs> Got a lot of heavy metal poisoning. <laughs> um, of course, because of this, early dyes were not permanent. They would fade quickly in the sun. Um, and they would leach out when the fabric was washed. The most sought-after color was blue, right? So, um... Did it just last longer or something? No, it was the rarest. Oh. So blue is a very, very rare color in nature. Okay. So if you think of 
blue. There's not a lot of blue in nature. Right, yeah. So, um, and, like, if you think about plants, plants are not blue. Right. And even the plants that are blue, like flower, like flowers that are blue and stuff like that, they're actually mixtures of other pigments that mm. appear blue. Interesting. Um, so, so blue uh, kind of doesn't really exist that much in nature. Yeah, as far as a blue pigment, nothing exists in nature um, outside of the indigo plant. So there is an indigo plant, that, but the plant itself is not blue. You have to do something to it to make it blue. That makes me question the primary colors now. <laughs> well, so part of the explanation uh, that I want to get into about why blue is such a rare color, uh, we're actually going to talk about it and like the light physics of it, because there's actually like a light physics reason why things are not blue. So obviously like green leaves are green because of chlorophyll, right? You okay. know, most people learn about uh, photosynthesis. Chlorophyll absorbs the light. Uh, the amount of energy that you get from that light is dependent on its wavelength. So um, the longer the wavelength, the, en- the less the energy the wave has. Mm. Um, so on the lowest end, you have radio waves. So anybody listening to this podcast is listening uh, probably on a radio, maybe on a radio wave, um, maybe on a microwave. So microwaves are what cell phones use. Mm. So that's the long end. And they're the lowest energy. Um, and most, a lot of people talk about, like, you could get cancer from your phone. I don't know if you've heard that myth. Yes, I, yeah, totally it, have. It's a myth. It's not real because the, there's a certain level of energy you need, then right? all be just, like, full of cancer. Exactly, right. exactly. Um, <laughs> so, and then after micro, so radio waves, then microwaves, then you get infrared light. And the length of the wavelength is the, about the tip of a sewing needle. So still pretty small. This is what we experience as heat. So like heat from a fire, um, the sun, radiators, that's actually uh, infrared light, essentially. Um, People don't think of that as a light like the light we see, but it's the same stuff. That's crazy. (laughs) Then you get the visible spectrum. So that's what we see. And the energy of light is also perceived as color. So the lowest end is red light. So that's the lowest energy. Then you get yellow, green, then blue, and then finally violet. So as you go up, you get more and more energetic. Um, And then you get ultraviolet on the other end of that, right? And so ultraviolet, you start getting sunburns and those kind of things. So, yeah. And so visible light um, is about the size of amoebas or bacteria. Okay. So microscopic. But once you get past visible light, that's where you get the ionizing radiation so UV light is considered ionizing radiation, and that's where you start getting your cancer risks. Mm. Yeah. And so after UV light, you get x-rays. People know what x-rays are. Um, the length of a x-ray wave is about the size of an atom. So you can imagine how much energy that is now that you know, like, because radio waves are as big as buildings, and then you're getting to that that small. Um, and then the most is gamma, gamma rays. Um, and those are the size of nucleuses of atoms. So really, really small. Um, and we actually use gamma rays to kill cancer cells. So like people do use it for medicine. Most people are like, oh my God, gamma rays. But it's like, it can be good. It can be good. Sometimes you get the Hulk. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'm like on a scale of one to tanning bed, how dangerous is this? <laughs> um, I promise this is like the most sciencey part. And then we get into history. So no, this is interesting. <laughs> 
the energy range for plants is actually really important. So um, again, you know, red light's the lowest energy, blue light is the highest energy. So you, plants want to absorb blue light. So you, that's why they don't want to be blue. Because if we see blue, it means they're reflecting blue light and not absorbing the light. So the green pigment means that they are reflecting green light. And so they're absorbing the red and blue ends of the spectrum. So yeah. green's like right in the middle. So it's absorbing the ends of the spectrum. Now, I'm not a biologist, so I had to really research what this is, like yeah. why this is, because yeah. you're like, why? Well, yeah, how does that work? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's apparently quite a debate. <laughs> but the current theory is that it's because the plants have a more stable rate of photosynthesis when they absorb blue and red light. Because, like, the sun gives off green light the most intensely. So, like, most of the light that reaches the earth is green. Like, a like a big punk chunk of it is green light. That's so crazy. Yeah, but it's also apparently the one that fluctuates the most. So, because it's so intense, you get a lot of highs and lows. And so, to keep the plant in, like, a stable homeostasis state, um, plants have evolved to specifically select certain wavelengths um, at the higher and lower end of the spectrum. And yeah, and so that's why they're not blue. <laughs> and that, that's the current theory. And there's like a model and they're like, they made a model of where they should absorb light. I don't know. It was a whole a whole paper that I really had to read because I'm not a bio, I'm not a biochemist. I'm not a biologist. Well, you did a great job. I still don't <laughs> understand, but great job. <laughs> yeah, and now you can think of animals. Animals are not blue either. So if you think of animals that are blue... There's like butterflies and there's birds usually. I think, I think of blue um, crab. Blue crab? Yeah. Yeah. Is that because of what they're eating or something? I don't know. I do not look rare, at crab. So those might be blue. So if I remember right, um, those are they have like in our blood we have iron, mm. and so in crab in some like crabs and like sea species they have a different molecule. Instead of uh, hemes and iron, they have, I think they're called cyano. It's cyano something. It's a different compound. And gotcha. so their blood is, their blood kind of looks blue. But, um, yeah, it Sorry, has to do with their topic. blood, <laughs> if I remember right. So, you know, don't quote me on that one. Um, inter- there's some crab expert that's going to listen to this and be like, that's, that's not, not why true. they're blue. The reason why they're blue is because I'm a stickler for her facts. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, most animals that are blue, terrestrial animals (laughs) that are blue, um, are mostly butterflies and birds. And so they have tiny scales on their wings that reflect blue light. So they're like little mirrors. Um, So it's kind of a trick. They're not actually blue. They just reflect blue light. And so if you were to like damage their feathers or their wings and change that shape. They wouldn't be blue? They wouldn't be blue anymore. Weird. (laughs) crazy yeah so there's no pigment that is blue in an animal um I'm like i feel like everything's a lie <laughs> um but yeah and now because blue is so rare and it's worth a lot blue clothing becomes a marker of wealth and royalty mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so especially in europe um because originally indigo was only common in southeast asia and africa um the leaves of the indigo plant um they're green, but the leaves um, can be fermented under alkaline basic conditions. Um, 
and then you expose them to air and then they'll turn blue. This process was discovered by like multiple cultures all around the world by accident. Um, so possibly the leaves were exposed to either urine <laughs> or ashes. <laughs> and so it just like was an accident? It's just, just an accident. Yeah. So like, you know, you pee, somehow pee gets on the leaves or you put leaves like, oh by God, the fire. There. I found blue. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so the most expensive and rarest dye of all was actually purple. So blue, blue is really rare, but even more rare is purple. So is that why all the, it was like, there's such a royal color. Cause it was like purple is. <laughs> exactly. Rich. That's why it's called royal blue. And then there's. Uh, a royal purple that's called Tyrian purple. Mm. And in some cultures, purple was reserved for the king or emperor alone. Like, only the king or emperor could wear purple. Um, and that was in Egypt, Rome, and Europe. The molecule that makes purple is actually identical to indigo, except it has two bromine atoms on it, too. So, like, it's basically the same molecule. You add a couple of bromines, you get purple instead of blue. When I add a couple of bros, I usually get purple, too, you know? <laughs> But yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Stupid joke. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, the earliest recordings of purple dye was in 1600 BC and is obtained from a mucus secreted, secreted from marine mollusks or snails um, that then you expose to air and it would turn purple. They did get it from an animal, a marine animal. Maybe it was something in their blood. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but this is like... They manufactured that dye in a Mediterranean port city of Tyre in the Phoenician Empire. So that's why it's called Tyrian blue or purple, Tyrian purple. I'm like all these ancient people. I'm just like, what am I doing with my life? Like they like literally got snail, whatever, and made like amazing <laughs> things. And I'm like just on TikTok, you know, like. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, but they also basically hunted these poor mollusks oh, near to extinction. Okay, just kidding. Sorry. So Take it back. Yeah, that like yes, it turned. They got purple dye out of these mollusks, but they were not. You know, you're not murdering an entire species of mollusks. So yeah, you know, <laughs> you're right. I take it back. Just kidding, listeners. <laughs> but yeah, and so they would crack open these mollusks and like smear the mucus on whatever fabric they wanted to um, dye, and then they would put it in the sun, and the color would change from a pale yellow green, then to blue, then to purple. It took 9,000 of these mollusks to make one gram of dye. Oh, God. That's so, too many. Yeah. So, like, that's what that's I'm saying. Like, they, there are still piles of shells on the beach uh, in those air, in Lebanon where, where this city was or is. Um, and the color was so sought after that the species uh, was ex almost extinct by 400 AD. Wow. So, uh, That's nuts, dude. yeah, and so you can still go and see these piles of seashells from from them making purple dye. <laughs> so these dyes uh, and the demand for them created a market for synthetic versions of the dyes. Um, the synthetic versions um, weren't made until 1880. There was still, you know, 400 AD all the way to 1880. There was nothing. They were still hunting mollusks or doing whatever they could um, to get these purple dyes. Um, the first synthetic version, um, was made by a German chemist, Johann Friedrich Wilhelm Adolf von Bayer. That's a hell of a name. Yeah. But Bayer, you know, the aspirin people is the same guy. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sir Bayer. Good job. Yeah. 17 years later, the dye, a dye company made synthetic indigo commercially available. 
Uh, our old friend BASF, uh, shout out to the Nitrogen episode. BASF is coming back. <laughs> Tyrion Purple. Oh yeah, BASF is the one who made the Indigo commercially available. That's what I was trying to say. Tyrion Purple was soon to follow. Uh, however, these were not the first artificial dyes synthesized. The first synthetic dye was actually a bright yellow color used to dye wool and silk. That was synthesized in 1771 uh, and widely used in 1788, so a long time before that. Um, the compound was called picric acid or trinitrophenol. Trinitrophenol. I don't know if that does that sound familiar to you at all? I mean, I'm not going to try it, but sure. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I don't know. That, felt, that does kind of sound familiar, but I just don't know what. So, uh, do you know what trinitrotoluene is? No. Do you know what TNT is? Like dynamite? Yeah. Okay. So, TNT, that's trinitrotoluene. Uh, trinitrophenol is very, very, very similar. Um, and therefore, uh, it is incredibly explosive. So, do you want a bright yellow shirt, or do you want to not explode? Those were your options. So, the shirt would just explode? So, I don't know if the shirt would explode, but the like while you were dying it, it definitely would I just like, imagine like, some dude just walking down the street, just exploding. Like <laughs> Maybe that's where um, uh, spontaneous combustion lets yeah. you <laughs> I hope so. And like, it's someone you don't like, so you buy him a yellow shirt. Like, you look great in this. You should wear it every day until, you know, people out. Yeah. Somebody's um, husband's being abusive. Oh, honey, I bought you this beautiful yellow shirt. It's beautiful. Because <laughs> you're such a great guy. Do some jumping jacks. <laughs> you want to you want to smoke smoke some smoke a pipe or something, you know, yeah. just just, <laughs> just relax. Disperse in the flame. I mean, relax. <laughs> So, uh, in 1856, there was a guy named William Henry Perkins. Um, he synthesized a dye that would revolutionize the fashion industry, oh. all right, uh, and the dye industry in general. Uh, Henry wanted to study chemistry at London's Royal College of Chemistry, um, but his father was a builder and not convinced that chemistry was a so sound financial career, <laughs> which I think is so funny because, like, no one would be like, Oh, you're, you want to be a chemist, kid? There's no money in chemistry now. <laughs> like, people wouldn't say that. That's what you say to, like, someone trying to get, like, an English degree. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, so 18-year-old Henry was set, set out to prove his father wrong, that he could make a career <laughs> out of chemistry. And so he set up a small chemistry lab in his house, <laughs> just in his house, uh, over determined. over an Easter holiday. So he's just like, oh, it's my vacation. I'm just going to try to synthesize quinine. Quinine uh, is a treatment for malaria. And so at the time, it was in really short supply because it was only found in the bark of a tree from South America. So you had to go to South America, get this bark, take it, make quinine, and then ship it to Africa where people were trying to colonize, you know. Um, Bad time to be sick. Yeah. <laughs> and so he had a professor, August Hoffman, who theorized that quinine could be synthesized from coal tar. He's like, coal tar. Make quinine out of it. And Henry was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so Henry never made quinine. <laughs> Didn't do it. But he did make a solution that was a deep purple. Oh, there you go. 
And so he knew that purple was a rare color. And so he decides to take some of it um, and drop it on some fabric and see if it stays. It was onto silk fabric and the fabric turned a nice lavender color. And he boiled it in water and soap and tried to like get it out of the fabric. And he realized that it was stable and was not going to bleed out of the fabric. That did not exist. Proved his parents wrong. Yeah. <laughs> his dad, specifically. We don't know how supportive the mom was. She could have been like, yes, son, follow your dreams, be a chemist. <laughs> I don't know. Let's hope she was. I hope so. Yeah, but he knew how rare purple clothing was, so he sent his sample to a dyeing company in Scotland, and they said that if it wasn't, like, super expensive, that he really had, like, a big discovery here. Henry quickly patented his discovery. He opened a small factory and started to produce his dye, and by 1859, Mauve was taking the fashion world by storm. Oh, hell yeah. Good job, dude. <laughs> um... Now that purple was, like, an affordable, it could dye wool, silk, cotton, and it stayed in the fabric. And, of course, everyone was like, oh, great, you know, purple was rare, so it's like, I get to look like royalty. Mm. So this guy made a lot of money. <laughs> and royalty of France and England wore mauve, too. Like, they, they actually wore the color, and so that made it even, you know, more more desired by the general public. Like a good little knockoff bag. Yeah, exactly. It was a knockoff bag. Exactly. And then mauve was even used in the British royal stamps into the 1880s. Like, it was like a national symbol for Britain was this synthetic dye mauve. Dang, that's crazy. Yeah. And it was just this, like, 18-year-old kid. I love that. Messing around in his kitchen. He's like, <laughs> he, I'm going to resurrect this country, you know? Like, the resurrection <laughs> day. Here we come. Um, and so this was actually the first true multi-step organic synthesis. So, like... As far as chemistry goes, like, this was the moment. And it created a whole new type of dye called coal tar dyes. Um, you also, they're also called aniline dyes. This created an explosion of new dyes. And by the end of the 19th century, there were 2,000 new synthetic dye colors. Henry was also one of the first uh, chemists to commercialize their discovery and make profit. There were other people that were doing this kind of stuff, but, like, they weren't making any kind of profit. He discovered multiple aniline dyes. He operated his own dye-making company for 15 years. Um, and during that time, the organic chemistry industry was developing. So before this, there was no chemical industry. Um, and while England and France were early frontrunners, Germany started quickly overturning them to a near monopoly. Henry retired a wealthy man. He sold his company. But he was really... The start and end of England's chemistry career, uh, as far as dyes were concerned. Um, there wasn't really anyone else that had the skills in chemistry, manufacturing, and business to compete with anybody in Germany. And this was because Germany was really modern in the sense that German industry and German universities were already collaborating. So, like, in England and France, you had universities and you had industry. And they were not overlapping at all. Weird. Yeah. Yeah, like now it's it's kind the of the same, right? Like Yeah, now everyone collaborates. Like I shouldn't say everyone, but there are absolutely like people whose whole job is in in academia to make new chemical reactions for someone in industry to use. And that did not exist until like Germany in the 1800s. Wow. So there were three main chemical companies in the 1860s. The smallest was Bayer. So we talked about Bayer. He made um synthetic he made synthetic Indigo, uh, he also made an, an artificial Alzerian red 
guy. Um, and then his big one was the synthesis of aspirin. So most of their money came from aspirin, but they also did some dyes. The second business, biggest was a company called Husht, whose main product was an aniline red, an Alzerian red, but what by a different method than Bayer, and a synthetic indigo. But the biggest dye company was the Badisht Aniline and Soda und Soda Fabric, which is BASF, which we've talked about them on our podcast before. I don't know how much you've listened about it, but they're our old friend. They're our good buddy. <laughs> our good buddy BASF. So by the 1880s, these three companies accounted for half the world supply of artificial dyes. And by 1900, they had 90% of the market. Wow. During, during World War I, these companies were synthesizing uh, not dyes, but explosives, fertilizers, poisonous gases, chemical weapons, and any other chemical needed to support the war effort. <laughs> so... Uh, spoiler alert for this episode, for this whole thing, it all leads to Nazis. <laughs> I was like, this sounds like very weird. <laughs> this sounds, I don't know. But yeah, uh, I am going to gloss over all of World War One because we did a three-parter on what BASF was doing during World War One. Um, so if you want to hear more about that, we have a Haberbosch, uh, process episode. Um... In 1925, after World War I, all three of these major chemical companies in Germany consolidated into one big company called IG Farben. IG Farben, with the rise of the Nazi party, became a major player in Adolf Hitler's war machine. Anywhere Hitler occupied, IG Farben took over the operation of any chemical factories in that area. There was a synthetic oil and rubber plant at Auschwitz in Poland that was built for IG Farben to run. <laughs> the victims of the Holocaust being kept at Auschwitz were the labor to run that factory, and they were used to test new drugs. So like bear making aspirin, they were probably doing all of that together. On the people? On the people, Ugh. all the prisoners, yeah. After World War II, nine RG Farben executives were convicted of plunder and property crimes in occupied territories, and four were convicted of using slave labor. I'm like, should we cancel aspirin now? I don't know. Right? <laughs> I'm like, what's ibuprofen been doing? You know? Nazi ties? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you have to cancel all of medicine. <laughs> you might. You might. Um, there, There is off-brand brand aspirin. I may, maybe by off-brand aspirin. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, and so after World War II, um, with all of these executives getting um, convicted, IG Farben was then split back into BASF, uh, Host and Bear, and they are the same companies we know today. Wow. I'm like, where's Johnson & Johnson in the mix? I'm just kidding. Johnson & Johnson, I think, is British, so... We're not there yet. Got it. Yeah. We're not going to talk about them in this episode anyway. But next episode, we're going to talk about... More about hair dye, which is more up your alley. More about, specifically, the founder of L'Oreal, um, who invented the modern hair dye, modern hair dye um, as we know it, but was also involved in a French fascist and domestic terror organization during World War II, um, because, it, like I said, it always leads back to Nazis. <laughs> it always leads back. Yeah, and before you cancel L'Oreal, we'll get to where they are today and... You know, you can make your own decision after that. But 
yeah, that's all I had for part one. What do you think? Thoughts? Very interesting. It all leads back to Nazis. <laughs> Photosynthesis. I don't know. I'm just like saying words that you said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> I loved it. You did great. Good research. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, you're definitely in a PhD program. I would have like read the first page and like been done with it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wow, she really knows how to look up things on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's not a lot about the, the next part. It was really actually hard to, like, this first half, very well-known information. I mean, everyone knows everything about World War II. Oh, yeah, because every dude in their 50s, like, love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, either you're going to grill or you're going to get into World War II history. Like, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um but L'Oreal, I think L'Oreal has tr- really tried hard to, like, downplay. I'm sure they're a huge <laughs> company, yeah. So, I yeah. I wouldn't, like, advertise that for sure. Yeah, but I did find a Smithsonian article that gave all gave all the tea, all the secrets. So, Can't we'll wait. get into it. Um, but thank you for listening to Cowboy Chemistry. Uh, do you have any plugs you want to plug? Thank you for having me here. Um, my Instagram, if you want to follow me, I do a bunch of shows in Lubbock. It's uh, Val Barba Comedy on Instagram. Check it out. All right. And you can follow Cowboy Chemistry uh, at Cowboy Chemistry Podcast on Instagram uh, and at Cowboy Chem on Twitter. Uh, follow me there. Uh, we're out. See you in a yeah. second. See you in, see you in a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Apoptosis is going mad, my liver's gonna fail Maybe it's from the radium I use to paint my nails Well say you hate me, carbon date me, throw me in the sea I'll be back with time because I'm made A stardust in chemistry A stardust in chemistry